0: Today's passage comes from Revelation chapter 4, and we're going to read all of chapter 4 and the first two verses of chapter 5. Hear God's word for us today. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. and is, and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created." Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we step into your throne room declaring praise that you are worthy of worship. We thank you for revealing to us the brilliance of worship centered on you and we ask the Lord that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see the beauty, the wonder, the grandeur of all that you are and that we would better center our lives on the truth of who you are and how you long for us to live that out in the present here on earth. God, we trust your spirit to guide us, to illuminate your word for us. Lord Jesus, speak afresh to us. It is in the name of Jesus in whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been entrusted, we pray these things. Amen, amen, and amen. So, okay, which one of you... Um, if not all of you, have had a dream where you woke up and you thought, what in the world was that? All of us have had a dream like that, right? You kind of shake it off the next day, thinking that probably it was from eating that week-old expired beef jerky. Anyone else? Just me? Well, I think we've all had those types of dreams. And frankly, when you hear a passage like this from Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we may be tempted to have a similar reaction, just kind of shrug it off and get on with the rest of our lives because it's frankly bizarre. And that's partly because in our culture we tend to view dreams and visions in the modern world as kind of an existential exercise into a person's psyche. This is partly influenced by Freud's dream analysis. He proposed that all dreams are basically a form of wish fulfillment, of repressed wishes, or the representation of wish fulfillment. And so we believe, by the broader framework of our modern culture, that dreams are ultimately about me. Because if there isn't anything else other than me, then why wouldn't my dreams be about me, myself, and I? Now, a challenge to that particular world view comes from the ancient Near Eastern view of the world, and frankly, so many other cultures around the world still today. You see, they had a bigger understanding of the world and a bigger framework for visions and dreams. Dreams and visions, they tend to be less about me and my particular perspective and my psyche and more a window into how the world actually is. To be clear, not just anyone who had a dream was considered, you know, to have this insight into the broader world and how things actually were. There were some who were gifted with these kinds of dreams and visions. They were often called seers or prophets, and then they would have these extraordinary experiences. They would meditate on them and bring organization to these ideas and write them down. Frankly, it's this type of ecstatic experience, these dreams and visions, that's at the heart of apocalyptic literature. Some of you may be thinking, well, who cares? What does this matter? (laughs) Well, if you were to walk into any local bookstore, you would find various styles and genres, right? If you go into the cooking section, you're expecting to find recipes. If you go into the poetry section, you would find poetry. If you go into the history section, you're looking for things that actually happened in the past, right? Well, same when we come to apocalyptic literature, it comes with certain expectations. You're reading it in a certain way, expecting certain things. And so it is when we come to the book. Of Revelation, You see, the book of Revelation is actually an interpretation of the first word of the book of Revelation called apocalypsis, right? And instead of being actually a pointer to the end of the world, that word in and of itself means to reveal, to pull back the curtain. And as we've seen over the past couple weeks, the book of Revelation is actually a prophetic apocalypse sent as a circulatory letter to churches in the first century to actually have application, comfort, and encouragement to them in their context, and then to still be relevant to every church and every generation thereafter. So today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to dive deep into apocalyptic literature specifically Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And we're going to dive deep into some dreams and visions. You see, John has a dream. He has a vision where there's a door to heaven that's open. And the Spirit of God takes him there. And you know what he sees actually at the center of everything, behind everything that's happening? In chapter 4 and chapter 5, it becomes abundantly clear that what's at the center of your world and my world, the world, is this. Everything is worship. Everything is worship. Now, I know I'm a pastor, and I know that sounds extremely churchy, right? Um, But hang with me, because even people who are not churchy at all have come to understand this important aspect of reality. For example, David Foster Wallace, he was a brilliant author and thinker. He passed away back in 2008. He gave a commencement uh, speech at Kenyon College back in 2005 before he passed away. And this is what he said at the height of his speech. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Remember, This guy is not a Christian. He is not a self-proclaiming Christian. He is not a churchy individual at all. And yet he understands that worship is at the center of human existence. It's not a matter of whether we will worship. The question is, what will we worship? Once again, David Foster Wallace continuing in his commencement speech. He says, the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC, that's our Jesus Christ, Allah be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some invaluable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up in front in daily consciousness. So what will you choose. What will you worship? What will capture your awe, the center of your life, your drive, your focus? What will you give your life to? And what John sees in Revelation 4 and 5 is at the heart of what is true worship. What actually invites heaven rather than inviting hell. And heaven is at the center. It's the locust of the life and life abundant that we all long for. And hell, of course, has always been a picture of destruction and death. So how do we invite life and life abundant? How do we worship the right thing and what is the right thing? Let's look over John's shoulder and this dream and this vision he has. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, we read... John writes, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So there's this door open in heaven and this voice calls him up. And then verse two, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And so what does he see is at the center of the worship of heaven, where things are as they ought to be, where life is actually flourishing. We actually see a throne. And the one on the throne actually isn't described interestingly enough. He's so transcendent. He's so beyond description. Imagine this. This is the one whom all living creatures find their source of life and yet he finds his source of life within himself. He is the infinite life beyond description, beyond imagination and the best thing that John could do is begin to describe the elements around him. So he notices that that there are minerals around him of jasper and carnelian which point to his splendor. There's a rainbow that looks like an emerald. I mean, God's brilliance is on display. There's flashes of lightning. There's peals of thunder. This is awe and power. And then he's surrounded by these four bizarre beasts and these 24 elders. Now... There are as many interpretations of these four beasts and elders as there are elders. I mean, there's just so many different ways to actually begin to understand and parse out. But what we can look at and find great confidence is is that all four beasts and all 24 elders are focused in on one thing. They are surrounding this one astounding transcendent being, the God of the universe. And it's his throne where they bow the beasts are constantly repeating holy 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 which if you're a biblical scholar or you're a thoughtful reader of scripture this Instantly brings you back to Isaiah chapter 6 where the prophet Isaiah steps into the similar throne room And he sees God up on his throne and he hears those beasts crying out again. Holy, holy, holy This threefold repetition of holiness is extraordinarily rare And it points to the superlative that this is the most holy, most unique, most different being in all the universe And the elders These 24 elders who sit on 24 thrones, they follow suit, and they put their crowns at his feet, signifying that he is the one of ultimate authority even over them. And so we find that we've stepped in on holy ground. It's meant to feel glorious. It's meant to to spark our imaginations of beauty, of astounding awe, inducing worship of heaven. I mean, this is what everything was created for, to worship God, to finally taste the best good, to finally feel eternal peace, to know love. I mean, true and unconditional love, to be in the presence of the author of life. This is true worship. This is worthy of the center of our lives. There's only one problem. It's in heaven. What about on earth? You see, you can't just taste this and walk away. And so you see that there's actually this scroll in his hand and it represents God's redemptive agenda for the world in this hand of this transcendent being is the very plan for actually bringing heaven to earth. And it stands ready to be opened if there is someone who has the authority, the moral authority, the positional authority to actually open this scroll. And so we come To Revelation chapter 5 verses 2 through 4. And we read, and this is John speaking. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Into it. You see, John begins to weep, and if you saw what John saw, you would weep too. You see, we can't just capture a glimpse of God's glory and walk away, because now everything else feels empty without Him at the center. We find that life's center is only found in its fulfillment in Him, everything is worship. And he's the best center. This is why we pray as Christians and Jesus has taught us to pray, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we long for. This is at the heart of worship. And then it transitions when you begin to ask for something so astounding as that. We begin to ask, well, what about me? What about this world in which I live? If that's what's happening in heaven, how does this very inadequate sinner living in a very wicked world fit into all of this? I mean, this is gorgeous. This looks nothing like the world that I inhabit. It's so much better. And so we begin to ask even, will everything sad remain true on earth? Because it's so unworthy of everything I've experienced in this glorious vision of who God is. And so everyone throughout all of history has been waiting for heaven to break in on earth. And so of course he weeps. He's broken, waiting for someone to be able to open the scroll. Then something happens. And actually, it's someone who happens. The veil is pulled back a bit further. You see, someone steps forward. And we notice three attributes of this particular someone. The first is this. He's the lion. Now, we notice this because John hears something proclaimed. That's really important. He hears proclaimed. Look with me at verse 5. One of the elders says to him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. God has been promising for so long that he would send someone in the line of Judah And he would be called a lion of the tribe of Judah. He would come from the root of David and actually sit on David's throne, the promised king of Israel. This is the Messiah promised throughout all of history that all the prophets have been pointing to. He's been told of his coming, waiting for him to restore all things. And he's finally conquered. Don't miss that language. That's really important. So all of this... Old Testament, these Hebrew prophecies of God actually sending the one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And he hears all of this that he's come and he's conquered. Now, this would have conjured up for John and any Jewish person at this particular time nationalistic pride, right? This is Israel coming back together. This is military might. This is power. This is dominance. And this was common imagery in the Jewish mind in the first century. But in many ways, this is what we still want today. It's what we expect. Someone who leverages their power to dominate our enemies. That's what he hears. These are the images that come to his mind. But look what he sees. So he's heard these titles and heard this proclamation. But notice what he sees. Look with me at verse 6 of chapter 5, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So not only is he the lion, he is the lamb slain and this is an utter surprise That the conquering lion, the one who comes to actually defeat evil, is a lamb that's been slain. And then suddenly in heaven, a new song is sung. And it's because the lamb has died. And that is what has made him worthy to to be the center of praise. This lamb has used its power to defeat death through its very own death. He doesn't use his power to abuse, but he lays it down for the vulnerable for sinners, for the broken. And he brings together all of creation. There's this extraordinary diverse group of people. Look at verse 9. That's from every tribe. So that may give us Israel diversity. Every language, every people. So this is bigger than Israel and nation. Not one nation under God, but all people from various nations under one lamb. And this should conjure up all sorts of images, right? This brings us back to Exodus chapter 12 of the Passover lamb and what God was doing to actually bring about this redemption of a people. The suffering servant foretold of by the prophet Isaiah who comes to actually bring liberation through his suffering. And then of course when we ask, well who is this lamb? We need to turn nowhere else other than to John's gospel account where early on he proclaims when he sees Jesus come up to the Jordan River, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Spilsbury, in his book, The Throne, the Lamb, and the Dragon, brilliantly says the slaughtered lamb is God's way of showing contempt for the power of the world. When God determines to establish his kingdom, he doesn't do it as the Romans did with invading armies and intimidation. Rather, he does it through the humiliating death of Jesus. So first, he's the lion. Second, he's the lamb slain. And then third, he is God. How do we get that? There's something absolutely astounding here. The way that chapter 5 ends is that the lamb is at the center of the circle of worship. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, but in a monotheistic culture, such as the Jewish culture, where we think of the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and now the Lamb is at the center, receiving praise exclusively and then simultaneously alongside of the one on the throne. And that can only mean one of two things. Either this Lamb is truly God and a window into who God is, or this is blasphemy. And what's astounding is when you get to the end of chapter 5 and verse 13, we see the largest crowd. Out of all of this, this whole movement of this vision, the crowd is the largest at the end, and they begin to sing praises to both the Lamb and to the one on the throne. And we read and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. He's the one who's worthy to receive the scroll. The lion, lamb as though slain fully God in the center of worship. So what does that mean for you and I? As we seek to discern what is true worship, the kind of worship that actually invites heaven to earth rather than inviting hell? Well, the first thing we need to understand is that true worship centers on the crucified Jesus. And not just Jesus as a human being, but how he reveals God's life through his death The center point of the cross is essential to understanding the heart of God and the ways in which he carries out his work in the world. Rather than eating us alive when we worship him, if you think back to David Foster Wallace's language, Jesus, God become flesh, dies for you and for me. This is how he reigns. This is what we are to become like. This is who he's forming us into. When we worship. And anyone who does this for us, why wouldn't we want to give him everything? If he has unlimited power and yet he leverages it for unbelievable sacrifice to bring about restoration of heaven and earth, why would we not give him all things? And listen, even even if you don't believe this, don't you want to believe it? Isn't it just so beautiful to think that someone with that much power isn't trying to manipulate us or sideline us or try to garner a vote or do anything to try to bolster their power but leverages every bit of their power for our love, to communicate His love to us for our good? Don't you want to worship that? Don't you want that to be the center of your life? Well, if so... Not only do we need to understand that true worship centers on the crucified Jesus, number two, we need to understand that true worship is an amen life to this reality. Chapter 5 ends in verse 14 with the four beasts and the 24 elders crying out, Amen! Not only with their words, but with their bodies. Look with me. And the four living creatures said, Amen! And the elders fell down and worshiped. You see, true worship on earth shouts an amen to what is actually occurring in heaven. It is a response to what has been revealed. Worship is our unequivocal affirmation to what we've been told about God in Christ. And so we shout, Amen. Something powerful about that little tiny word. Sitting with my children this morning, And my one son, Zion, who's not even two years old yet, will end a little simple prayer with that word. And that's like the one word he gets the clearest is amen, right? There's unbelievable power and meaning. It's common practice for you and I. We end our prayers with the word amen. When somebody, when we're in the corporate gathering and somebody really agrees with something that is sung or prayed or preached, we shout amen. It means yes, I completely agree. I love the way Eugene Peterson describes it. He says, it is an answering word purged of all negatives. And that is what our response to God and Christ is to be. An answering word purged of all negatives. You see, when you understand who's at the center of everything and how he's already conquered death and how he's done it, then everything you do is either a living, breathing, shouting, yes, that invites heaven on earth, or it's a confirmed no that invites pain, destruction, and heartache. And so we say amen. When we gather together as the people of God, in corporate worship, we actually reenact this gospel, this good news. When we sing praises to the one on the throne. When we hear of the lion lamb proclaimed from the word. When we come to the Lord's table and we remember how he was sacrificed on our behalf. And then we shout amen together, and this reverberates through the benediction on Sunday all the way to Monday. We always say we're a church for Monday, but every Monday needs a good Sunday. We need to start together with a corporate and shared shout of amen as to what God and Christ has done for us. And it reverberates throughout the week. The Old Testament prophets were clear on how this worship worked. Whenever the nation of Israel got so myopically focused only on their rituals within the temple, God called it an abomination. Unless it involved the vulnerable, unless it cared for the poor, unless it was something that spoke into Monday and shaped their interactions with their neighbors, it was worthless. Worship included all of life. And so we come to see that when we say amen, one of the best ways to do that is through imitation of Jesus. Isn't imitation the highest form of praise? You see it as so good, so beautiful, so wonderful that you want it to be a part of your life. And so through the rest of our life, we actually go about imitating Jesus. And we participate with him in his sacrifice. I'm going to stop there. I saw you stand, because then I'm going to go into something. And it's going to get real. <laughs> Maybe. Or it's just going to be really lame. So, It'll be real. Real lame. <laughs> Are we good or you want to check that real quick? I don't think this one is battery. the Battery looks low, but I'll sit here and watch that. <laughs> <laughs> and is it record. recording? As yeah. As long as it lights on, I'll good. Okay. We say amen to Jesus when we love what he loves. When we seek his kingdom first and all these things are added unto him. We say amen when we affirm the dignity of the vulnerable and stand for their cause. Jesus does this again and again. And so what does it look like for us as 21st century Christians in our current context here in Kansas City? We stand with our black and brown brothers and sisters who have been brutalized in this country. And so we declare amen to what God in Christ has done for us. We pursue the care of the poor when we don't allow the trenches of poverty to become a death march through overwhelming obstacles to improvement and opportunity and so stripping affordable housing from our land but instead looking for greater opportunities for the diversity of living situations for the most vulnerable. We say, Amen. We speak truth to power when it looks like anything less than Jesus' model of power when manipulation, when abuse, when browbeating and distortion and the language of our leaders and movements goes about falsifying what is actually true. We say not here, not now, and we as the people of God constantly use critical thinking to engage and pursue the truth as it is now displayed in our 21st century context. And so we say amen. We lay down our lives, our preferences, our comforts and put Jesus' ways, Jesus' commands and his calling front and center of our lives. That means in the midst of this virus that has become more than annoying, but frankly sometimes suffocating, we still put the preferences and the needs of the most vulnerable to the virus ahead of our own. And so we say amen. Amen to how Jesus accomplished his work of conquering and how he continues to do it today. We see our everyday work not as a means of self-justification or self-gratification or self-glorification, but an avenue to point to the Lamb where we can place our particular gifts and talents or even just our time, if it sometimes feels like drudgery, as an opportunity to love our neighbor. And seek the pursuing of our community. And so say amen to Jesus. When we're in conversations with friends, with family members, with co-workers. And sometimes even acquaintances. And we're willing to share the good news of what God and Christ has done for us. And so invite them to join this forever family. We are declaring an amen that it's something worthy to be shared to those who do not yet know Jesus. We leverage our bodies toward purity rather than unbridled passion, knowing that this body is a temple of that very living God. And so we say, amen. You see, in amen life, it centers on Jesus, his way, his truth, his life. And we can't myopically just say, look to Jesus, rather than looking at all that Jesus wants us to look at through him. You see, John had a dream. He had a vision. And every dream that speaks of righteousness and justice, it stems from that dream. Stephen, the first Christian martyr in the book of Acts, he shared in this dream. Martin Luther, who's seeking to reform the Catholic Church, he shared in this dream. Martin Luther King Jr. and his drive for civil rights, he shared in this dream. And it's a way of seeing who's at the center of the world that shapes what you chase in the world and how you seek God's kingdom to come to this world. And frankly, you and I, we can share in this dream too. You see, everything we do is worship. Everything is worship. And only when the crucified Jesus is at the center will, like John, our tears turn to joy. Only here will heaven break into earth and push back the sadness. And only when we live out an amen to that truth and through that truth will we actually extend Jesus' victory over death and Hades, even here and even now. What an astounding vision. What an astounding God. What an astounding world. And it's all because God's people say, amen. Would you say that at home with me? I know it feels kind of awkward, but I want to just have you hear yourself say it. Amen. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And so now we turn to a central act of God's people, which has always been a declaration of the death of Jesus until he returns. I'm talking of the Lord's Supper. Through common broken bread, we remember Jesus' body broken for us. and Through common juice, we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. It's not only to remind us of what Jesus has done in history, but to form us to be a kind of people who do the same today. So if you are a follower of Jesus, not just an affirmer of Jesus, but a follower of Jesus, and you long to partake in this meal and you have some of those elements handy, I'd strongly encourage you to do so. If you don't have them ready, it's easy to pause this, right? I think we've learned that uh, over this season, to pause this video and gather those elements together, gather some friends and family together, if possible, and partake in remembrance of him. To center your life, once again, in a very tangible way on him. But before you do, let's remember what's been handed down to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Centering on Jesus. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready. Remember, center your life on Christ through this particular function together. Let's worship the crucified Jesus.